Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And today we're also joined by uh, pod regular Robert Miller. Hello. Howdy, howdy. For anyone who's just tuning in for the first time and you haven't heard Robbie join us on an episode before, Robbie is an activist who works within the climate movement and uh, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a friend of the pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything you want to say, Robbie, to new listeners that are tuning in because they like Harbinger? <laughs> also go check out the Alberta Advantage, which is a podcast that I have not been on yet, but is super rad. Yeah, like low-key, Robbie uh, shouts them out like maybe half of the times that you're a guest on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Should buy us some goodwill, hopefully. Yep. <laughs> but today we are going to be looking at decarbonizing, <laughs> which is like something I feel like you know, 77 or whatever episode we're on episodes in. <laughs> we talk about it a lot in our episodes. And so it just it almost feels like late to be talking about what is decarbonization now. But yeah, <laughs> but but Kristen, you read like six books for this episode and the prep was really deep. So I mean, it's not, like we're going to do a good job. It's just kind of funny that it's coming this like deep into our podcast. <laughs> It's kind of funny because like, um, so like some of the books were books that I'd read before, but for the amount of research that I did in terms of reading for this episode, my research notes for this one are absolute shit. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully we end up with a good conversation. Usually with Robbie, things end up being pretty ad hoc. So we'll see. <laughs> I think it's also pretty on point that we're talking about decarbonization a little bit late into the podcast because we're also talking about decarbonization a little bit late into the climate crisis. So hey. yeah. <laughs> yeah, And we are also hopelessly ill-prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the world. <laughs> oh, man. So I thought we would just, uh, for our general map for this episode, we'd start by talking just briefly about what our current climate trajectory is, like where are we headed right now? I'm sure most people who are listening to the podcast are not climate deniers. It would be shocking to me if anybody's a climate denier that listens to this podcast. So we don't, I don't think, need to win people over in terms of the idea that we need to do something about climate change, but it can be helpful to talk about you know, in practical terms, where we're headed. Then we talk, we'll talk a little bit about like, what do different levels of warming look like in practical terms? Um, so that's sort of like, why do we need to decarbonize? That's the justification there. And then we'll spend most of the episode talking about decarbonization. What is it? When do we need to do it by? And um, what it might look like in five major areas that are big greenhouse gas sources. I think one of actually the interesting questions that gets raised when you say this, like, it's very unlikely that we have climate deniers listening to pullback. I think that is that's, that's probably true. But I think it's very likely that there are a lot of people who don't really like grasp the necessity of what we're doing and some of the more wild eyed projects that people have proposed around decarbonization. And so it's like, I think that there's a lot of people who are willing to say that like, oh yeah, like climate change is important to me, but the projects that they're willing to sign on for and the sort of like movements that are necessary to actually meet those goals um, might not actually be within people's comfort zones. 
So there is still some like persuasion to be done here when we talk about the fact that we needed to be carbon like zero or we need to be carbon zero in like three years now. What you're saying really makes a lot of sense to me. And it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a friend recently about um, the movie Don't Look Up, which we had thought about doing a Reacts episode to and decided not to. But uh... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I loved the movie. It was very funny. But after talking so much with Robbie and doing my own research on how to actually save the planet, it just I just my two cents on that movie real quick is that it was hilarious. But it really framed the problem as though there was nothing that regular people could do, which is like not quite true of the climate problem. It's more of like a collective issue. So that was like the one thing that I that I was like, oh, it's a little different there. But otherwise, like the way that everyone reacted using social media and all of the ways that like <laughs> the people at the top of government and like the CEOs of major tech corporations, everything that they did was like comical but also terrifying because it is 100% what would happen in real life yeah yeah for me the most unrealistic part of that entire movie was uh that the physicist would have given first author credit to his grad student but <laughs> <laughs> the most immersion breaking part of that movie for me was Leonardo DiCaprio uh being married to an age-appropriate woman <laughs> one of the like more salient criticisms though um similar to kyla's perspective is that yeah like the only solutions in don't look up are necessarily these like massive statist techno like technological solutions even like nuking an asteroid is a massive like statist technological in like intervention and so the film erases all of the ways that like when we're dealing with the climate movement it's not just scientists that we need to be listening to it's also like indigenous land defenders and just average everyday people who are going to have to live through the climate crisis. We're not all going to get wiped out at the same time in one gigantic cataclysm. That's not what our trajectory for climate change looks like. It looks like a slow and steady decay uh, and then just like rolling constant catastrophe for decades. And so it's like, that's the kind of challenge we have to deal with. Yeah, which is we've already started to see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, it's already started because like if you live in BC, like welcome to uh, the next 40 years of climate catastrophe of wildfires, then atmospheric rivers, followed by like record shattering snowfalls. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Such fun. <laughs> no, but anyway, I was talking about Don't Look Up to one of my friends. A few of my friends have asked me how I felt about the movie. I don't know. A lot of my friends are in that sort of vein of like, not quite climate agnostics because they do want to act on climate change, but like much more sort of like we'll get out of this through just like funding R&D and like putting in place some small scale nuclear reactors, you know. And I, I when I was talking to him about it, I was like, yeah, one of the things that I thought it did a really good job of was like showing how it feels to be a person that's taking the crisis seriously and to have nobody else around you really do the same thing. Yes. Mm. And it made me think. I, it made me realize that I think a lot of my friends think about climate activism as like a weird fringe hobby, like fantasy football or something. <laughs> <laughs> like I do get that vibe a lot. And so I don't know, maybe this episode, like if there are some people that think about it that way, maybe we could do some persuasion there. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of room just in like the people who care but are living their normal lives. I think there's a lot of room for people 
to think more about exactly what we need to do to decarbonize because I don't think people understand. Like we just had a bag ban go into effect in Vancouver and it's like such drama. And it's like you guys know (laughs) that like 60 years ago there were no plastic bags. I think we'll be okay, you know? And like everybody wants the climate problem to go away, but nobody's willing to do the work for it. And it's because they don't understand exactly what it's going to take. Like I didn't really understand it. And then we started doing this podcast and it's taken me like two years really to fully understand it. And that's like, Kristen, you've basically given me like a doctorate's worth of training. (laughs) (laughs) And I think one of the other challenges in that way too, when we're looking at like, what is the climate movement doing and what are we doing as a trajectory is that like decarbonization also has lots of really cool opportunities built into it. One of the reasons why I really hate like plastic straw bans and plastic bag bans is both because they're largely irrelevant, but also because it keeps on framing the way that we get out of the climate crisis as things that are going to be self-denial and going backwards and like having a less a less interesting, less fulfilling life. When in reality, it's like a lot of the really good decarbonization solutions that we're looking for are things that are going to be like dealing with the rent crisis, which is also- I like, want fucking high-speed rail. <laughs> Come yeah, on. Exactly. I want more bike paths that you can like walk down and there's trees lining and there's no cars driving. Like decarbonizing, it's not only going to save the planet, it's going to make our lives more livable. I'm, a, I'm reading a book right now uh, about burnout and- it's just wild how messed up our like whole generation is right now. And like saving the planet is not only something that we should do, but it's something that would be good for us. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of my favorite recent studies that came out, and I have no idea how like thorough this is. It's just a really cool byline. And I'm really happy that some scientists were doing this, is that they were studying behavior differences between like properly wild and urbanized coyotes. And they found that urbanized coyotes were starting to show signs of what looked like depression. Like not only are our cities making us sad and miserable and unhealthy, they're also making the wildlife that interact with those cities uh, unhealthy and unhappy. So it's just like something is very wrong with our urban planning if we're making the coyotes depressed. (laughs) Oh, poor little guys. So it's like, yeah, if, if you really don't believe that humanity deserves uh, a better future, uh, think of the coyotes. Uh, we can build, if we build better, more livable cities for humans, they'll also be more livable for urban wildlife. Robbie, do you want to tell the like parts per million carbon budget story? Because I feel like you've done a lot of climate workshops and might be better at talking about this than I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always forget the actual numbers. It's what I need like a PowerPoint slide to look at. But most of the problem is just that when we're looking at the parts per million and where we're headed, we're already in like a degree of carbon dioxide pollution that is largely unheard of in like geological timescales. But one of the reasons why this hasn't resulted in just like a complete catastrophe is that it just, the earth is big enough that it's going to take some time for these effects to take place. And one of the things that I always find to be really concerning is that the first climate model that was ever produced was made in 1915. I can't remember the guy's name. He was some American physicist. And he predicted that based on the carbon dioxide that had just been emitted from coal-fired power plants up until that point, we would see about one degree of warming by the end of the next century. And he was largely spot on. 
uh, despite the fact that his model was extremely rudimentary. And that's because the science has been there since like the 1890s for understanding how carbon dioxide traps heat and the way that these gases interact within our atmosphere. One of my like favorite examples of this was a guy in the 1880s who basically laid out all the groundwork for carbon pollution and global warming by reading the temperature of the moon from his backyard because uh, he just like made you know those little like uh, laser infrared uh, thermometers that you can use in the kitchen. He basically made a really big one of those to measure the temperature of the moon. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, <laughs> and if you measure the angle or the temperature of the moon at different angles in the sky, you have a different amount of atmosphere that your infrared laser is traveling through. And so he used that to figure out the specific heat capacity of Earth's atmosphere. And then was just like, yeah, if we added a bunch more CO2, then we would get this much warming, blah, 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 blah. And you did all the math. And so it's just like, we've known about all of these facts for well over a hundred years. And we knew that this was going to happen. And so it's really a lack of preparation, a lack of common knowledge, and just, you know, huge, massive corporate entrenched interests that are pillaging the planet for profit and also pillaging our futures for their current profit. So that's the weird thing about this is that it's not even like, you know, Al Gore invented the climate movement in, you know, 2000 with an inconvenient truth. It's like this science has been basically ironclad for more than 100 years. So one of the books that I read to prep for this episode, it was called The Decarbonization Imperative. And it's a, it's a book basically that looks at technologies of decarbonization. So I think it like leaves out a large scope of ways that we could decarbonize because it really focuses on like, how has the electric vehicle thing gone? And like, how are solar panels doing and stuff like that? But even looking just within those stories, one thing that I found really interesting is how like solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles all like had their moments uh, in the 90s or early 2000s. And for various stupid reasons, <laughs> like they got sort of shut down. So like we could be so much further ahead on a lot of these things. We just, you know, a combination of like lobbying interests and you know, just general societal shittiness has led us not to take the low-hanging fruit. On our Monopolies episode, I had some feedback from a listener who sent me an article about, I think it was Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and how they were trying to build an electric car like way back in the day together. And what ended up killing it wasn't like some conspiracy. It was that Edison had talked up his batteries so much that Henry Ford refused to buy anyone else's batteries. But Edison's batteries just like wouldn't work for these cars or they couldn't make them enough or something happened. And then Ford just kind of gave up on the electric car business entirely. And it was like, what? That's so dumb. Yeah. I mean, electric cars were until like the 1930s, the main form of car that was sold. They weren't great either. Because I mean, one thing we'll talk about later in the episode is like, if your electricity is produced through fossil fuels, it's not really much better. So you have to decarbonize electricity in order for having electric vehicles to really make a difference but yeah i actually did the math on that a few years ago for alberta which has probably the dirtiest electrical grid in north america definitely in canada it does definitely <laughs> in canada and uh yeah it turns out that at least with the sort of like fuel economy and stuff that you could get a few years ago driving a tesla model s was about as polluting as driving a prius but that is um i mean like the energy the electricity energy mix in Canada 
is 61% from hydro, but that is primarily like East, an Eastern Canada thing. So I looked at um, Alberta and Ontario just to get a sense. And in Alberta, 49% of electricity comes from natural gas and 43% from coal. This was in 2018, so maybe coal's gone down a bit, but yeah, it's, it's like bit, yeah. almost all from fossil fuels. Whereas like if you look at almost any other province, it's, you know, oftentimes hydro in Ontario, the main one was actually nuclear, which I was surprised by. I knew there was some nuclear energy, but I didn't know that it was like making up the majority of the electricity grid, but Alberta is a bit of an anomaly in Canada, but certainly not around the world in terms of that. And one of the things as well to think about in those statistics is that like the Prius is never, your, your Prius is never going to get more efficient. But if you switch over to an electric car and the grid around you is getting greener as they largely are, then over time you have like your efficiency will get better. And so it's like, even in places where it's like, okay, you're not really making huge gains right now, but you know, if your car is still on the road in 10 years, um, so don't buy a Tesla because they get recalled, then you will like, you will see those savings in the long term, even if you're not seeing them in the short term. Yeah. And like the reality is most places that you live in Canada, you will see huge gain because the electricity grids are already fairly green. Yeah. So that's some good news. Yeah. <laughs> So we were talking about the current climate trajectory, and uh, I mean, we could throw like parts per million numbers at you. I thought Robert, Robbie did a good job of like telling the story, but the sort of short of it is uh, we're currently on track. Like if we continue emitting the same amount that we're emitting now every year, we're on track for about four and a half degrees of warming by the end of the century. Just like to put that in context, the goal for not getting ca catastrophic effects of climate change is 1.5. So 4.5 is much beyond <laughs> what we want to be sticking to. And in fact, that's just like a business as usual scenario. If we like, let's say things like natural gas continue to get cheaper and we actually increase emissions, the planet could, by some modeling, warm by as much as eight degrees. And that's partially like if we increased emissions, but partially also that um, scientists are just now starting to figure out how to include feedback effects into their models. So a lot of the times they're finding that, you know, they thought this amount of carbon was going to do this much uh, to warming the planet, but then they have to figure out, they have to add in new ways that are like causing increased warming or, you know, cascading effects uh, <laughs> if um, melting of the ice caps causes other runoff effects and things like that. So yeah, <laughs> we're in trouble. And it's also wild because it's like we've experienced one degree of warming in a hundred years, and that's been like noticeable in terms of the way that it affects climate. And then in the next 75 years, we're looking at another three degrees of warming. And it's just like the speed and scale of which those are going to be changing is like astronomical. It's also wild because it's like you're thinking about like three degrees and you're like, okay, that doesn't sound like very much. But when you think about that as like, there are a lot of, of liters of water on the planet and the amount of energy that's being required to heat all of that up by three degrees is really quite staggering. I should do the math on that and actually like have some like quadrillions of watts of energy that's being added to Earth's ecosystem. That's one of the hard things to understand is just like the scale of an even one degree change in a thermal body as large as the Earth's like climatosphere. 
But if it's easier for people to visualize it, everyone can just look at BC this year and we had all of our highways washed out by horrible floods and we also had a whole town burned down in a day and we had record numbers of people dying in a heat wave and that all happened this year and we're at 1.2 degrees of warming right now I think so if numbers aren't your jam maybe examples are. And that didn't even make the list of the top 10 worst disasters. (laughs) No no I'm just using local examples this happened everywhere on the planet this year. Yeah it's been bad. I thought that um, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, I mean, I personally think it's one of the most important books to read uh, as just a human that exists. But I wanted to read a couple of paragraphs from that because he does a really good job of explaining why the difference between one, two, three, four, or five degrees makes a difference. Because these numbers are so small, we tend to trivialize the differences between them. One, two, four, five. Human experience and memory offer no good analogy for how we should think of those thresholds. But as with world wars or recurrences of cancer, you don't want to see even one. At two degrees, ice sheets will begin to collapse. 400 million more people will suffer water scarcity. Major cities in the equatorial band of the planet will become unlivable. And even in the northern latitudes, heat waves will kill thousands every summer. There would be 32 times as many extreme heat waves in India, and each would last five times as long, exposing 93 times more people. And this is our best case scenario. At three degrees, Southern Europe would be a permanent, in permanent drought, and the average drought in Central America would last 19 months longer, and in the Caribbean, 21 months longer. In Northern Africa, the figure is 60 months longer, so five years longer. The areas burned each year by wildfires would double in the Mediterranean and sextuple or more in the United States. At four degrees, uh, there would be eight million more cases of dengue fever in Latin America alone and close to annual global food crises. There could be 9% more heat-related deaths. Damages from river flooding would grow 30-fold in Bangladesh, 20-fold in India, and as much as 60-fold in the United Kingdom. In certain places, six climate-driven natural disasters could strike simultaneously, and globally, damages could pass $600 trillion, which is more than twice the wealth that exists in the world today. Conflict and warfare could double. So that's at four degrees of warming, um, which is actually less than what we're on track for right now. (laughs) So it's not great. I know that you already plugged it, but I love that book and everyone should read it if you have not. <laughs> he writes it. Yeah. It's very accessible. Uh, it's it's like reading a horror story. So if you're into Stephen King, you know. <laughs> yeah, take some CBD first. <laughs> I did some quick math while you were reading that quote uh, to look at like how many joules of energy is implied in like three degrees of change. And I don't even know how to like describe a number that is this large, like it is 5.26 times 10 to the 25th joules of, of energy, which is like <laughs> millions of Hiroshima bombs. <laughs> like it is a staggering amount of, of energy. It's totally, it's a totally useless figure because it goes from like three degrees Celsius change in the temperature of the earth. Uh, it goes from insignificantly small, so it's hard to conceive of, to so catastrophically large that it's also impossible to conceive of. <laughs> <laughs> There was a good fact that I found. Um, it was also from the Uninhabitable Earth. An academic study basically looked at if you compare 1.5 degrees of warming to 2 degrees, 
how many additional deaths from just air pollution, not any other climate-related sources, but just air pollution, how many more people are going to die in a 2-degree scenario versus a 1.5-degree scenario? And it was calculated that there would be an additional 150 million deaths. So that's 25 holocausts, and that's just between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. So all of that to say, we really, we really need to decarbonize. <laughs> yeah, the IPCC reports have some like similarly striking figures in terms of like the frequency of drought and stuff like that. You're just like, yeah, it's going to be really bad. So that's our climate trajectory. It's bad times. <laughs> it's bad times. The good news, though, is that like every single thing that everybody does to reduce the carbon in their lives, like... You can think about that as contributing to saving one of those lives or, you know, five of those lives, depending on the scale of the impact. So it can feel really overwhelming to know that we're so far from our targets and we're probably locked into two degrees. But every single thing that we do keeps us from eight degrees or four degrees, you know. So, yeah, decarbonization. Um, what is it? It is a huge project. It basically means changing everything about the way that humanity operates so that we reach net zero annual global carbon emissions. So it means basically taking carbon out of every facet um, in which we live our lives. And there are basically two ways that we can do this. Um, one is by reducing emissions in the things that we do. And two is by increasing carbon sinks, so the things that store carbon. And we're going to have to do both of those things. And one of the challenges is that the second one of those things is... Uh, very often a scam. <laughs> like it's true. <laughs> so much of carbon capture, utilization, and storage has amounted to nothing more than gigantic subsidies to oil and gas companies to do nothing. So we really do have to focus on like ways that we can reduce emissions and reduce the ways that we utilize carbon because a lot of those are tested, tried, and true. Like those are things we can start doing today and tomorrow. Whereas carbon capture, utilization, and storage still feels kind of like a, a tech in progress. Cool things could be happening, but... It's, it's like in the movie Don't Look Up where they're like, oh, we have this thing that will stop the asteroid and make us money. And they're like, but has anyone like actually tested this? And they're like, don't worry, it'll work. And it's like, no, 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 we actually need something that will work, though. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody wants to learn more about carbon capture we talk about it a bit in our carbon offsets episode so everyone should go tune into that <laughs> yeah speaking of like one of the casualties of last year's california wildfires was a gigantic tract of land that had been set aside as a carbon offset program like it was a forest that people had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars protecting as part of california's cap and trade system and it went up in smoke <laughs> so it's like when we did that carbon offsets episode and I was talking about how like all of these projects are based on the idea that those trees will be standing for 100 years, that becomes increasingly uncertain as the climate starts to shift. Yeah, so that's so that's the issue that we have to fight for when it comes to taking carbon like out of the air or offsetting carbon. But then the problem with actual decarbonization is that there's a huge information gap, I think, between what people think it is and what it actually is, which is where our podcast comes in. No, just kidding. Well, sort of. But <laughs> but I think that like there's an issue with both of those things that you're talking about, Kristen. Like, there's the issue with the uh, carbon capture and there's the issue with the decarbonization. 
Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is that a lot of the time reducing our emissions, the big barrier to that is that we've locked in technology. And so there are like financial incentives built in. And so in social science, we often call them transitional gains. It's transitional gains traps, but we have to do something about it because we can't wait for 40 years for that like nuclear or that like um, natural gas run power center to stop being profitable. <laughs> you know, like we we can't be locking in more infrastructure and there's going to have to be stranded assets. Decarbonization, it means taking carbon out of everything that we do by reducing emissions and increasing carbon sinks like forests. But there are different views on when we need to decarbonize by. Um, so some people suggest 2050, but if we want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, the reality is that we, we need to do it by 2030. 2035 is like the latest reasonable estimate that I've seen. So it needs to happen in the next decade or so. Otherwise, we will be locked into those 25 holocausts worth of air pollution deaths. So I found some some stats here just to sort of drive that point home. So in or if we want to hold global warming to 1.5 degrees, we need to keep uh, CO2 concentrations below 430 parts per million. The IPCC estimates that we have about 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide remaining in our overall carbon budget um, if we're going to have a like 66% chance of keeping CO2 concentrations below that upper limit. So that gives us, by their estimate, until 2030 if we keep emitting as we are. And the IPCC is a relatively sort of conservative um, consolidation of scientists. So we should believe them on that. And basically, once that carbon budget is expended, we need to reduce annual global net emissions to zero from that point on forever. So we have this budget that we have probably will use up in 10 years. And then after that, we need to be at zero every year for the rest of time and ideally negative to be able to reverse some of this warming. So the the reality is that like we don't know exactly when that carbon budget will run out because it really depends on how many emissions we use. So the longer we wait to reduce emissions, the sooner net zero day is going to arrive. And right now we're not on the right track at all. Um, our emissions are increasing by uh, half a percent every year. So they're not going down, they're going up. And we need to be getting to zero very quickly. And it's also interesting to think about in terms of when we say we need to transform society in 10 years or less, that can seem quite daunting unless you sort of spend some time looking at industrial revolutions and changes in what's happened and what we've done previously. Like a lot of our extremely fossil fuel intensive infrastructure only popped up in a period of about 20 years of expansion, like after which it you know continued to expand onwards and onwards. But that transformation of our economy from one that largely didn't use fossil fuels at all to one that was entirely dependent on it only took like 15, 20 years. And so we can look at transformations like industrialization in the Soviet Union under the five-year plans, which obviously like has its own whole host of issues and problems. But if we wanted to commit to a dramatic reorganization of our industrial base and our economies, we can do it. Like it is within human capacity to just completely transition how we do things. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing now that I'm in my 30s. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people, un, like it feels daunting because you just, 
when you're younger, especially, it feels like, oh, things have always been this way. But that's not the case at all. The first Ford car rolled off the line like 120 years ago. And the first airplane started to fly like 100 years ago. So, well, maybe a little bit more than 100 years ago. But like that, that time frame for, for those two industries is so short. Yeah, it's definitely possible to drastically change the way we live our lives. I think the question is like, whether we'll summon the urgency to do so. I think it's much more likely that we'll sort of slowly move towards half measures. So I think we'll probably decarbonize by like 2060 and we'll get to like four degrees of warming. That would be my guess, but <laughs> hopefully not. I don't know. I, I feel like the momentum behind the movement has grown exponentially in the last two years. And if we continue to grow at an exponential rate, then it's not impossible for everyone to be on board by 2030, especially as the younger generations grow up to take on more responsibility in like the voting booths and in the actual electorate. And as we all start joining communities to fight for this, because I, people are caring now. And I mean, a lot of it is like we're seeing people quit their jobs in droves right now. And part of that is because people are like, the status quo is messed up. And it's not just the economy, it's everything, you know? So I, I, I'm hoping that the urgency is settling in now. And the more emergency situations people witness, especially in their own backyards, the more quickly we might start to see changes. Yeah, I don't know, though. Like, um, so I just read How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. And he opens with this really interesting anecdote about like climate activists showing up at COP meetings and telling governments to stop dithering and using that like blah, blah, blah tagline. And then he goes, oh, by the way, that was at COP1 in 1995. Just in case you thought that it was Greta Thunberg. No, <laughs> we've been doing this since 1995, basically the same messaging and nothing has changed. I know that's like not the hopeful tone we try to set with this podcast, but goddamn. We wait, <laughs> we try to set a hopeful tone with this podcast. I have been <laughs> failing miserably. No, I I was just going to say that uh maybe it'll be easier for people to get on board because in the 90s people are like, "Oh, we won't even see changes until like the 2050 like the 2010s." And people are like, "That's not even a real year, you know?" <laughs> and now that we're actually experiencing it, like you know when you need to write a really important essay and you don't actually start it until the day before it's due and then you get an A? That's what I'm hoping for when it comes to humanity and the climate crisis. That's just me with podcast prep every time, except maybe without the getting an A part. <laughs> and Tyler with the editing schedule too, though always an A plus on that one. Thank you. I do like to stay up until 5 a.m. the day that I'm supposed to publish finishing an episode. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to talk about was um, it's something I haven't actually heard in mainstream discourse about decarbonizing. Like in when we're hearing about decarbonization, I feel like we always hear about solar panels and we always hear about electric vehicles, but we never hear about classifying carbon as a luxury or not. This uh, book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, the argument is about um, doing sabotage on pipelines and I'm not going to endorse breaking the law on this podcast, but um, the point that he makes about how we should be targeting in our discourse at the very least, um, 
rich people and luxury carbon. I think that's a really good point. And it's been like a notable absence in our climate discussions. Well, what also has been a notable absence is just redistributing rich people's wealth. So I don't know if like, (laughs) I feel like those fall into the same sort of bucket where it's like rich people are like, oh, I have to do something. No, 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 (laughs) no. Harkening back to the beginning where I was talking about the way that decarbonization can make our lives better. One of the major things that's missing in a lot of like environmental discourse is also just like labor discourse stuff. We could knock out huge amounts of carbon emissions if we cut the workday. Uh, if more people were able to work from home. Decarbonization is more than just techno-wizard solutions. It's a lot of social changes that are good things to have. Like if we you know, can live life a little bit slower, that makes public transit so much more accessible. That makes active transport more accessible. If we have more time in our lives to just like take care of ourselves, we are less dependent on services like Uber and like Skip the Dishes and all of these like car-based instant gratification uh, delivery systems. Yeah, if we weren't all so tired and miserable all the time, maybe Amazon wouldn't be such a behemoth, you know? Like everyone, it's the convenience factor. No one's got time to go to the little shop up the street and hopefully find the thing they're looking for. It's like, no, I need to go to Amazon because it's just the easiest thing to do. And there's my to-do list is bottomless and I don't know when I'm going to get anything done. And that's burnout culture as I'm learning in this book. (laughs) Okay. But also there are about 300 super yachts that exist in the world and they account for as much carbon dioxide emissions as the entire nation of Burundi. Why the fuck are super yachts allowed? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes. (laughs) I don't know. I just think in general we should end billionaires, but like let's ban super yachts first. Why the hell not? It's a really low-hanging fruit for for carbon. And I honestly think the entire movement should be like more geared towards immediately hitting the the rich. Like that's a an extravagant use of carbon we shouldn't be using. It's luxury carbon. Get it out of here. Yeah, the problem with that, though, is that the rich people are the ones making all the policies, and that's why they keep dithering and blah, blah, blahing, right? They don't actually, they're the ones who have to make the biggest changes, and they don't want to, and they're like, well, I'm too powerful to have to do this. I know. Ugh. <laughs> all right, so um, let's let's talk about visions for decarbonization, because I feel like um, one of the aims with this episode was kind of to make the big project of decarbonization look a little bit more concrete for people. So we're splitting it out into five sections. This is following the structure of that book, The Decarbonization Imperative, that I had read. There are basically five sectors that are the biggest contributors to our overall carbon budget, and they include energy, transport, industrials, agriculture, and buildings. So we're going to talk a little bit about each of these. I've pulled like some stats for each, um, but... After that, we'll sort of have a general discussion about like areas where we think decarbonization could be cool or policies that we think that we need um, in each of these sectors. All right. You guys want to start with energy? Let's do it. Roughly a quarter of all emissions come from the production of energy. So that's specifically um, producing energy for electricity and heat and things like that. And then another 10% of emissions come from fossil fuel extraction, refining and processing. So it's a big chunk of our overall carbon budget is uh, energy. And uh, in 2014, uh, global electricity production was 40% coal, 22% natural gas, 16% hydroelectric, 11% nuclear, 
6% renewables, which was mostly solar and wind, and then 3% oil. There's a lot of carbon-intensive electricity that we're producing. But just a note that like that mix has not always looked the same. Um, you know, natural gas is becoming more popular over coal, but also hydroelectric used to be more important in a lot of countries than it is today. And same thing with nuclear. So the mix does change and it really depends on where you are. But that was the sort of the global one. In Canada specifically, I had mentioned this already, but 61% of our electricity comes from hydro or tidal power. The rest of it, there's 15% nuclear, 9% natural gas, 8% coal, and 5% wind. So it's actually not so bad. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by that. I think it's really possible for Canada to go 100% green. Like, that's only what, you know, 20% of our grid that we have to switch over. A lot of the challenge of that, though, is just that it's like, we're running out of good places to build hydroelectric dams. And so instead, we're having to build them on like geologically unstable, culturally important lands. Um, looking at you, Site C Dam. This is interesting, too. Um, the Like most of the rest is from uh, biomass and geothermal, which is kind of cool. It's not an energy source that you usually hear about. So cool. <laughs> That's actually one of the really cool opportunities for decarbonization in Alberta. Geothermal is not quite as useful in a lot of like places on the Canadian Shield because you have to drill down really fucking deep to get a good like temperature differential for what you're using for geothermal. But uh, Alberta has a lot of people who are really good at drilling really deep holes in the earth. So maybe the <laughs> one thing the province is best at. <laughs> so yeah, we we have the technology to create like a different kind of geothermal because a lot of people think geothermal and they're like, oh, you're using lava to boil water. And we can do that in a few places in the Rockies and it would be kind of cool. But you can also generate a large amount of electricity from just the thermo, thermal gradient between places that are really deep in the earth and the surface of the earth. That will actually create an electrical current that you can use. And so it's one of the ways that we could monetize all of the like thousands of oil wells that we've drilled is just turning them into small scale like thermocline generators. Uh, and then we also have an entire industry that's built on drilling holes into the earth that we could also be repurposing to, instead of taking oil out of it, just drill down because we can just use a depth of the earth and generate power from it. This is some very cool stuff. And it's like, this also is like, it sounds like science fiction. You're like, you're telling me that we can just like drop a wire really far into the earth and generate electricity. It's like, yes, <laughs> uh, it's a very real technology and people have been doing it for a while. Yeah, it's true. I mean, geothermal hasn't, um become commercially as much of a success yet that doesn't mean the science isn't sound but like wind and solar are the only two renewables right now that are equally competitive to fossil fuels which i think is really cool because like i don't know i remember growing up hearing about wind and solar and it was like oh that's nice uh, go hippies but like it'll never be as cheap as natural gas and it'll never be as cheap as like coal you know but it is now, like, and it, it truly wasn't at the time, but now, like, wind and solar are pretty much as competitive. Um, and, like, if there were sort of tighter regulations on fracking, um, it would probably be cheaper. So that's neat. If there were tighter regulations and not billions of dollars an hour in subsidies, because, um, like, that's the <laughs> other thing. People are like, oh, well, oil and gas is so cheap. And it's like, no. 
<laughs> it is subsidized to the tune of billions of dollars a day. If we just stopped doing those subsidies to oil and gas, A, people would riot, as happens quite frequently when governments slash fuel subsidies, because we've built an entire economy based on giving huge amounts of money to the rich for very marginal reductions in the prices of fossil fuels. If we just took all of those subsidies and pushed them somewhere else, uh, energy transition would be done in a matter of like years. Robbie, I'm sorry. I didn't believe you when you said billions of dollars an hour, billions of dollars a day. So I just Googled it and yeah. <laughs> coal, oil <laughs> and natural gas received $5.9 trillion in subsidies in 2020. It's something like $11 billion an hour. Yeah. So that's that's from uh, Yale. Yale put that out. So <laughs> it's so, not one, two, three dentists. <laughs> I, I found a credible source. It's right at the top. So Robbie was right. And I had to look it up because it sounded so unbelievable. And I figured the listeners wouldn't believe it either. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 100% real. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's nice that wind and solar are there. One of the, the concerns with those two kinds of power is that, like, they are intermittent. So you need to have either like a good way of trading electricity across the grid or a way of storing energy or some kind of base capacity. So that's why, um, I mean, I don't know how much we want to talk about this because I do think we should do a whole episode on nuclear, but that's why some people are talking about nuclear as a good sort of like base electricity if you want something that's not fossil fuel based. I am uncomfortable with it, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I don't think we're responsible enough to deal with like stuff that like, we're not responsible enough to deal with a plastic bag that lasts 500 years. Why should we be messing with stuff that can poison people like thousands of years in the future? But on the same topic of um, massive government subsidies, um, the nuclear industry is propped up almost entirely by government subsidy. And in the UK, they're trying to build a new nuclear reactor. And in order for the companies building it to go through, the UK government had to guarantee that the price of electricity will continue to rise uh, at a like set rate for the next 75 years in order for the like profit loss statements on those nuclear reactors to work. This is despite the fact that for the last 20 years, the price of electricity in the UK has been going down. <laughs> like that is the amount of subsidy that we need to put into nuclear power. I'm going to plug an episode of How to Save a Planet here. They do an episode called Should We Go Nuclear? And they, they're a little bit more centrist than us i would say they have more journalistic integrity and uh and they look they look they've got a team and they hire people this is just you the three of us you know but they do a whole episode talking about nuclear and uh the pros and cons and i think it's really good and i think people should check it out so i'll link to that too for sure so yeah um if we're looking at sort of establishing that base capacity, you could do nuclear. You could also do hydro. Um, Robbie's pointed out some downsides of that. But, like, we do eventually need to get to some kind of energy mix uh, where we can meet our energy, our electricity needs all the time. And it's all based on zero carbon electricity. And right now, wind and solar are, like, the two fastest growing electricity sources but they both have that intermittency problem and energy storage isn't great right now. So yeah, we do have to do something in the meantime <laughs> to deal with that. Decarbonizing the grid also isn't a purely technological problem. Um, like again, one of the reasons why I like to talk about like reducing the workday is that there are just 
huge office buildings all across the country that have to have their power on at all times constantly. And it's just like, if we didn't have to occupy those buildings, that would be power savings. Like if we're looking at changing how we use electricity and when we use it, like you have problems of, we need to create these grids that are capable of meeting peak demand um, when we could, you know, try to reorganize how we like, you know, work and how we spend our time so that those peaks are lower and we have a more like stable electricity usage. These are all possibilities as well for how we sort of reduce our electricity demand so that we don't need to have it. And we can just say, well, we've already got the hydro enough to cover our electricity requirements and we can just turn off the natural gas plants because we simply don't need them. Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, some areas are already doing fairly well at this. Um, Definitely like on the eastern seaboard in North America, there's a lot happening in terms of energy trading because like with hydro, a lot of the times there's way more being produced than is needed. Um, So there already is some like trading of electricity happening across the grid. But one of the big things that's going to need to happen is is being able to do that on sort of a wider scale, really integrating electricity grids like across entire continents so that you can have, you know, if it's a sunny day in, I was going to say Arizona, but not in California, but it's sunny all the time in California. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say it's like really, really sunny in Edmonton, but it's not sunny in Vancouver. You know, the grid can like adapt in some way. And like there are technological challenges because anytime you're transporting, you're going to lose some, but... That's one of the areas where there's a lot of cool stuff, but also it sometimes feels a little bit like somebody's telling me about blockchain, you know? <laughs> you guys, um, I had asked you to come up with like something you think is cool in each of these areas. Uh, do either of you have one for energy? I just listened to an episode from Vox. The They do a podcast called, I think, Unexplainable, and they did an episode about fusion energy. <laughs> So fusion would be like if we could harness the power of the sun and it would be completely carbon zero and it would give us infinite energy. <laughs> and, and 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 it's not like a thing that's probably going to happen in our lifetimes. But if we put like all of the trillions of dollars that we're using to subsidize oil and gas and we just took that and put it into researching fusion, the amount of like there it's such an underfunded interesting field of study and that even with the like the measly amount of money that they're making they've they've been making like breakthroughs and learning things entirely new about how science just works so i think that we should all be spending more money on fusion and you should consider writing your politicians about that (laughs) i'm a big fan of uh fusion as well they uh they just had some major breakthrough in china with like keeping plasma at a really high temperature for like 17 seconds or something. They were like, Yeah. So imagine if like, instead of using duct tape, glue and cardboard boxes to do their research, they actually had like money to spend. (laughs) Well, I feel like the Chinese researchers are probably (laughs) well-funded. It just feels like an area that China would want to invest in. You know, the energy source that could give you free energy forever. Why aren't we funding that more? I, th- I, I'm going to link to the episode that uh, uh, Unexplainable did on it because it's fascinating. I think it's because it's kind of a, like, it's so science fiction. It's so out there that 
people don't feel like it's a good investment, especially since the research that's still needed would be the return on investment. Basically, the problem is capitalism because people (laughs) want to see a return on investment right away. And this is going to take maybe 100, 200, maybe longer years. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Part of it is also just like massive capital cost. Like uh, building a tokamak reactor is is not a trivial undertaking. (laughs) Okay, should we move on to transportation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's do it. So transportation is responsible for 14% of greenhouse gas emissions around the world. And of that, uh, most of it comes from cars, trucks, delivery vehicles, and semi-trucks. So 60% is coming from what's called light-duty vehicles, which I think is like cars and pickup trucks. And then 23% is coming from delivery vehicles and semi-trucks. So that would be sort of, you're more specifically like industrial transportation kind of things. Most of the transportation emissions are coming from those two sources. But then there's 9% from aircraft. And one of the problems is that we're flying more every year, maybe not the last couple of years because of COVID. But in general, there's like more air travel happening. So those emissions are growing. I mean, if you're rich, why not? You you pick somebody up on a Tinder date and you're like, hey, babe, do you want to go to Paris for dinner and then Tokyo for breakfast? How? You know, like, why wouldn't you? No super yachts, no private jets. <laughs> Amen. Aw, Kristen, what if I get rich one day? You won't. No. <laughs> Look, you guys, I would be an ethical rich person. I know that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but I feel like I would be the exception. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so then there's very small uh, percentages that are contributed from like boats and rail also, but it's like a very small amount. In terms of what we can do for transportation, the big thing is electrifying vehicles. So You can do that two ways. One way is through like, I think what most people will have heard of or think of when they think of electric vehicles, which is like battery operated ones that you plug in to charge. But there are also fuel cell vehicles that um, they combine intake air and hydrogen to create a chemical reaction. I don't really understand how this one works, but you would basically go to the pump and fill up your car with hydrogen rather than gasoline. As far as transportation is concerned, my I have no fun, cool, like high tech solutions to this um, because the only thing that I care about is building more trains. That's what I said. Yeah, build more trains, <laughs> build, have more buses. Like it's just so inefficient to have such a car culture. Yeah, and I mean, it's it doesn't need to be this way. Even in Canada, where we're all spread out so much, it doesn't need to be this way, especially in the cities, especially in the cities. It's so <laughs> shameful, Edmonton, that you have to wait 35 minutes for a bus. You know what I mean? Like, And that's if it <laughs> arrives on time. So I agree with Robbie. I said that like I, I was kind of doing like speculative stuff for this one. I just I want to see more public transit. I want to see better bike lanes. I want to see more wa- like when I think of car culture like a lot of people will think of i mean a lot of um people from alberta will certainly think of just the ruralness and the sprawlingness of canadian cities especially like edmonton calgary places with like lots of space where if you want to go down the block it's actually like a 20 minute drive but 
when I think of car culture, I think of Athens, Greece, which is like a city that was not built for cars, that has crammed so many cars onto their streets. And it's just made it a miserable place to visit. And it's such a beautiful city. And all they need to do is just get cars out of the downtown court. That's all they need to do. And it would just improve things so much. And it's like that all over the world. I actually have a fun fact that I looked up, which is that the Canadian federal government will be spending about $15 billion in the next eight years on offering more transit and greenifying the transit that we have. So there'll be there'll be more green transit. And I mean, now like $15 billion doesn't sound like much after learning that we've been subsidizing the fossil fuel industry for trillions of dollars, but I guess it's not nothing. Yeah. One of the things that um, for me, like transportation really like, irks me is that like how much they've taken away from us like Edmonton used to have an above ground trolley system that serviced most of downtown a lot of cities in North America did and they killed them to put cars there you can look at the rail maps of like Canada and the United States a hundred years ago and it's like every small town was serviced by rail and so all of those rail services were killed and replaced with trucks. They were evil monopolies, but... <laughs> they were evil monopolies, but it's like we can just take over the evil monopolies and turn them into <laughs> crown corporations so that they're marginally less evil monopolies. Yeah, and it's just like such a shame. This is just a perfect example of how decarbonizing will it just improve your life. Riding a trolley through town is so much more charming and less stressful than riding th like your car through rush hour traffic and just sitting for 45 minutes angry that the person in front of you didn't signal before they cut you off. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> car culture needs to go away. Like people talk about like electric cars and like, oh, we need to get more electric cars on the road. I'm like, I think we should just get more cars off the road, no matter what they are. It should be illegal to buy a car at this point. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> there are some uses for cars. But yeah, I agree that like anybody living in like a medium to large size city should not have to own a car for their everyday life. Like there should be more public transit. It would be better for our health because air pollution kills thousands of people every year. Um, it would be better for our health because cars run over humans like walking or cycling in cities all the time at super high rates. Well, and car accidents, like you're more likely to die in a car accident than like, I don't know, all sorts of other ways to die. And I was reading a really cool article about this family of like five where they bought the van for their kids to even drive them to soccer practice. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll carpool like with, with other families. But none of the other families wanted to carpool with them because they all had their own huge vans. So this family decided to switch to bicycles and it improved their lives so much. It was such a charming article to read. Yeah. And like Edmonton recently had a bout of like extreme extremely bad winter weather. Uh, and I say that like as an Edmontonian, it's kind of weird that our worst winter weather is when it's like zero degrees. Cause we basically had like a long series of like ice storms and freezing rain for days on end. And the city was struggling to clean it all up. Uh, and one of the statistics that was put out by the city of Edmonton is like, yeah, please have patience as we try to clear the roads because there are 11,800 kilometers of roadway in the Edmonton municipal area, um, which is enough like road mileage to cross Canada three times. 
That's just insane. <laughs> yeah, and it's just way more efficient to have like mass transit so that instead of being in your one car, you've got like 50 to 100 people in a bus. Like, Yeah. Ah. Transportation, I think, follows a lot of the similar logic of electric, like the electrical grid, that it's like, yes, there are a lot of technical solutions for greening the grid and greening how we do transportation, but largely the solution really is like, just do less of it. Yeah. Like in Vancouver, I moved to Mount Pleasant, which is just this really lovely area where you can like you walk for like 10 minutes and you'll pass dozens of little locally owned shops and cafes and restaurants. And it's so lovely. And I I can walk, you know, two minutes in either like any direction and I'll find like a, a grocery store and I just don't have to drive anywhere and being able to walk everywhere is so amazing. And if I want to meet my friends, they live just up the road. I hop on the bus. It takes 10 minutes, you know, like it's just nice. I just I don't like it. I don't like living in Edmonton and not being able to walk to places. Yeah. And it sucks, too, because like this is coming back to like the way that rent and housing policies are climate change policies is that it's like so much of what drives the massive urban sprawl in Edmonton is just that it's the only affordable way for people to own homes. Which is wild because like having single like homes with a large footprint out in the burbs is so insanely like inefficient from like a carbon emissions perspective. Yeah. Oh no, I think like, in 50 years we're going to be looking back at the housing market of especially the like the 90s and the and the early aughts where everyone had that two-car garage and that, you know, three-story house with a basement and four people lived in that house. And we're all going to be like sick to think about it. You know what I mean? It's going to be one of those things. I'm already sick. Yeah, I know. But (laughs) I think it'll be like a common thing where everyone will look back at that and be like, isn't that crazy that we used to do that? Yes. Yeah, so I, I do, like, I agree with you guys. I mean, I think we're all on the same page here. It's it's really about, like, getting more public transit, changing the way that we live our lives. But there are also some good policy solutions that we could do right now, besides, you know, sort of transit and urban planning. We could increase gas taxes to make it more expensive to have a gasoline-fueled vehicle so more people would buy electric. But just a quick note that you do need to green that electricity grid, otherwise it may not be better. We could also build more charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. We could have rebates for buying electric vehicles. A big thing governments could do is electrify all of their fleets. Um, And I think a lot of governments are starting to do this, to have their buses be electric, to have their garbage trucks be electric and things like that. We could also build more trains. (laughs) And uh, there is some work going into looking at electrifying airlines, but um, they're not there yet technologically. So maybe in the future. Oh, this was one of the the really cool things because like uh, ocean transport isn't a huge contributor to emissions, as you mentioned, despite the fact that like they burn just like the absolute worst diesel. Like it's shocking that they are so carbon efficient, given how like horrendous the actual like ocean liners are. But one of the cool things that's starting to make a comeback is the idea of sailing ships. One of the things that people have been figuring out recently is that when you're at surface level, you can become becalmed really easily, which is why like sailing ships fell out of favor compared to like motorized uh, vessels. But uh, with advances in material science, we can create cables that are strong enough that you can fly kites 
at like levels of the atmosphere that constantly have wind. And so as a result, you can create like wind powered sailing vessels that never become becalmed and always have stable wind. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, kite boats. <laughs> that I love that. That's so cool. I used to work for a hot air balloon company and I learned a lot about how hot air balloons work. And it's just they go up, they find the wind and they just kind of go where it blows them. You can't steer a hot air balloon. So it'd be really cool to have a like a sail on a kite because you could go up and down to find the breeze you want going in the direction you want, just like a hot air balloon. It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and like you, we don't have to use cloth rigging for sails either. And so there's been some designs that are looking at using like solar panels as sails at like terrestrial level so that it's like yeah if you're a little bit becalmed you at least have enough electricity coming off of the sails that you can keep the motors and everything running nice uh, are we ready to move on to industrials yes excellent so industrials are about 21 percent of greenhouse gas emissions and it basically refers to like mining, refining, and manufacturing. So a lot of the things that we get in the economy are wrapped un up under industrials. The book that I read focuses on steel, concrete, and petrochemicals um, because those are all quite energy intensive. I don't know. I To be honest, like I don't know how much I want to talk about making steel or concrete production slightly greener, but I will say like there are ways to do that and we should. <laughs> And the thing is, is oftentimes they're also more economical. Like one of the things that has been really driving like concrete and steel to get greener is just purely economic incentive. So yeah, it's also something that like the average person really can't interact with. Yeah, that's why when uh, Kristen wanted us to look into these topics for industrial, I looked at the clothing industry. <laughs> nice. That does fall under this category. Well done you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. So I looked up some good news, which is that the vin the vintage industry is kind of booming. I found an article specifically set in Ottawa that's just like, oh, everyone's buying vintage. And I know anecdotally that the shops in Vancouver are just bumping lately. Apparently, clothing rental is also experiencing like more demand. Folks are making leather from mushrooms now. That's a cool thing. And I, I have this really nice quote from... An article on yahoo.com. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's been a cultural awakening of sorts in that difficult questions about the industry and its practices are circulating more widely, suggests Bell Jacobs of Fashion Act Now, the climate crisis campaign group that evolved out of Extinction Rebellion. This is as a result of multiple emergencies, from the pandemic to Black Lives Matter and to the climate and ecological emergency itself, and seeing how fashion intersects profoundly with each, we are starting to understand that fashion is essentially extractivist, exploitative, racist, and even sexist in the way it works. So lots of good people are currently trying to do their best to turn this ship. Meanwhile, there's like an entire desert in Chile that's just a graveyard of fast fashion throwaways. Yeah, Yep. It's pretty yep. horrifying. So that's why I wanted to choose like some good news from the fashion industry because I think people are starting to wake up to how horrible it is. We did a three-parter on that, I think, because it was just so dense. So if anyone wants to learn more, head, head over there. It was bleak. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to take the carbon out of the fashion industry, stop buying new clothes and just go thrift awesome other clothes. And also remember, polyester is plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't really have a lot for this one because it's sort of like there are some things happening. I'm sure there are public policies that we could have. It seems like putting a price on carbon is kind of like 
in this industry specifically a really important thing. And then other than that, like it's don't waste your phones, like just reduce what you're using, you know. There was actually one thing um, in industry that I think is worth mentioning is that the way that we do carbon accounting is often done on a national basis. Um, But one of the things that I think is really cool is people starting to adjust carbon emissions based on trade flows. Because like one of the reasons why China's emissions are so high is because it is the industrial heart of like Western capitalism at this point. And so it's like how many of like how much of China's emissions are actually like Americans emissions uh, just outsourced and offshore to somewhere else. And I think that kind of analysis of industry gets to be really interesting and really useful for making decisions on this kind of topic. For sure. Yeah, we definitely are like wealthy Western countries are definitely dumping (laughs) into um, other countries and also if you look at the consumption that we have, our our carbon production is so much higher. There's a really good concept um, called uh, ecologically unequal exchange that's all about that in uh, an economic context, but it'd be really cool to see those emissions stats too. All right, buildings. Sweet. Yeah. For some reason, I didn't write down how much <laughs> carbon emissions buildings contribute, but they are big, um, big emitters. And um, it's important to note that... Um, when you're looking at the emissions from buildings, there are a couple of different buckets. So one is something called embodied carbon, which is the emissions that are tied to actually like constructing the building, like making the building, how much carbon was used then. And then there's also um, emissions coming from the electricity that's consumed by the building or by appliances in the building, things like that, as well as emissions that are generated through on-site fossil fuel consumption. So if you're heating your house with natural gas, or if you're cooking on a gas stove, those are things that would count there. So the emissions that we have in the building sector are mostly from a combination of embedded carbon and electricity, but about a quarter of that comes from our on-site energy consumption. So, you know, heating and electricity, those are real things that we as like people that live places and go to office buildings and things can actually interact with. Two trends to note. Um, So homes have been getting a lot bigger and they take more energy to heat. That's been a trend that has been challenging. As well, um, almost all new homes now have air conditioning, which is another thing that will sort of increase how much, um, how many emissions are produced. Uh, As someone who will probably never own a home, one of the things that I think is really challenging with building and stuff and like coming back to again, not technical problems, they're social problems. Like I don't own the place that I live, so I can't improve the windows, um, which I would love to do because it sucks that my windows are so fucking shitty and drafty, <laughs> but my landlord owns them. I don't, so I can't do shit all. As with Robbie, I expect I will also never own my own home. Love living in my best millennial life. <laughs> But no, that is like um, the sort of renting dynamic is a challenge in terms of making homes more energy efficient, because especially if the utilities are paid by the like the tenants, there's really not very much incentive for you as a landlord to like make the building more efficient in any way. Right. And as a tenant, you're not allowed to. And like also rent is so high who could afford it you know so yeah and it's other things like i i share the 
washing machines in my building with everyone else. So I don't get to decide, oh, these aren't energy efficient enough. Maybe when they die, I'll replace them with something more energy efficient. That's not something I get to choose. My, the fridge that I have was obviously very cheap and is very not energy efficient. I wouldn't have picked that. You know what I mean? It's stuff like that. And when it dies, I'm not going to buy another one because who can afford that? You know, like, especially <laughs> if I have to leave it behind afterwards. So they're just going to give me the shittiest fridge. Although maybe I'll offer to pay the difference and get a nicer one. I don't know. <laughs> no, because they get it in bulk. They have a uh... Every fridge in the building is the same, so they get them cheaper. There's no way you can compete with that. Yeah, there are like, um, there are some cool initiatives that are being set up to kind of deal with that weird dynamic. So one of the things that I came across was something called Property Assessed Clean Energy. I think this is the, the name of an American program. But basically the idea is that you can cover the upfront cost for upgrading a building to make it more energy efficient or to make it in other ways more like carbon friendly. So if you wanted to install a green roof or solar panels or something through a loan that is made through a special property assessment. So it's a loan that's secured against the property itself and paid as an addition to your property tax. So like if a homeowner wants to upgrade in some way that is environmentally friendly, they could get one of these loans they pay it back through their property tax. And if they sell the house to somebody else, that cost gets carried over, but the value also gets carried over. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of a, a cool idea. There's lots of other things that could be done, like beyond, you know, densifying <laughs> how we live. Um, we could also require that solar panels be put on all new construction. We could add efficiency standards to building codes. That's a big thing that could be done. One of the big barriers is just there's a lack of awareness of sort of some of these energy saving initiatives or some of the like things like installing solar water heaters. There's not a lot of knowledge among, about that among architects, builders and homeowners. So promoting awareness is something that we could do that would help. Well, and something that's pretty easy to do as well, just as a person in your house is and I'm so guilty of this, but like not leaving your electronics plugged in all the time. <laughs> but you can also get like, um, like there are electric sockets that will turn off, like that you can turn off. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, even if your your stuff is off, it's still like drawing. It's I think it's called ghost power or something like that. I'm not an expert in this, but uh, what I might start doing is just lighting my house with candles. It's a concrete building. I probably wouldn't kill anyone. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the things that like most of our energy use is coming from big appliances that we use or from heating, like either heating the air itself or heating your water, though. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's good if you live in Ontario or BC where most of the grid is green anyway. But, <laughs> hey. <laughs> but it's still good to be energy efficient because a lot of things about decarbonization are going to put more pressure on the electricity grid. So energy efficiency is a really good thing to strive for. All right, let's talk about the last sector. It's agriculture. Um, so agriculture, as well as forestry and other like land use areas, it's a whole sector that's lumped together. Together, it accounts for 24% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but most of that is coming from agriculture. And can anyone guess where what kind of agriculture is causing most of that? Animal oh. agriculture. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about this so many times on the podcast, so I don't really want to talk about too much. <laughs> 
But one of the big problems with agriculture is methane production and nitrous oxide, um, both of which are really potent greenhouse gases and are pretty, not like specific to agriculture, but agriculture is a big problem with both of them. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what do you guys want to talk about for this section? I, I wrote down like a like a strangled stream of thought. So I'll just read it out. <laughs> I was I was very high when I was brainstorming this at this point. And uh, I was like, meat budget. And then like there's a, an opt out tax credit. So everyone gets a certain amount of meat. And then if you don't want any meat, you get like a tax credit. And then I was like, but what if what about restaurants? And then I was like, well, restaurants would get their own meat budget and they would just have to like deal with that. And then and then I was like, well, what about publicizing grocery stores and the food supply? And then I was like, I guess that's just communism. I guess we just need communism. And then I wrote UBI. And then I said, tax the junk food and hide it in the back of the <laughs> public owned grocery stores. So those are all my ideas. I didn't actually come up with anything that's really happening, though. Yeah, the more I think about it, Kyla, the more I come around on the publicized, like the gross, the grocery stores idea from the food episode. <laughs> You're already a monopoly. We might as well have it be a state-run one. Like, there's no reason that Galen Weston should be as rich as he is <laughs> selling fucking bread. Yeah. Price fixing bread, boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my like the biggest one is obviously the most boring one, which is just stop eating meat already for fuck's sake. If you want some like actually really cool and interesting and fun decarbonization solutions, I'll plug another podcast, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. Uh, it's run by some folks out in Camrose here in Alberta. And yeah, they do an entire series on ways that farmers are trying to be at like the vanguard of the climate movement. So just like really cool techniques for farming. One of the things that I thought was really neat that I learned about through them was like, um, solar thermal greenhouses. So basically like one of the challenges of having a greenhouse here in Edmonton is that you have to heat it. And so it's actually like plausible that a greenhouse grown like red pepper here in Edmonton would have a higher greenhouse gas footprint than bringing one from California, just because like the energy required to run the greenhouse is so high compared to just putting it on a truck. And it would be even more a bigger differential if we put it on a train. But some of the things that people are doing is like we have a lot of space and so you can use just like massive bodies of dark material that you use to store heat during the day so that during the night you don't need to heat the greenhouse at all. And so it's just like using solar energy, not for electric, like electrical purposes, but actually like trying to use solar energy as a source of thermal power um, to keep greenhouses running without electricity. Just some like really cool stuff that we can be doing. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, I don't know this. So the chapter in this book on agriculture, it had a combination of solutions. Um, some of them were like, oh, yeah, these are things that we've talked about on the podcast before, like anaerobic digesters and like lab cultured meat and stuff like that. And then some of the other stuff was just like really dystopian. Like, apparently, there's research being done into and I guess this is practiced sometimes too, but specific feed additives to make cows belch less um, and like feeding them probiotics as well as like genetically breeding less like flatulent cows. It's like, oh my God, just eat less meat. <laughs> <laughs> like cows burp, my God. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, people who 
maybe love meat, which is a lot, I would argue the majority of people, there's a world that exists where you can still eat meat, but it's on special occasions. Like we don't need to be having a chicken breast three times a day with every meal. This is actually like one thing. Okay. So this book, it, it proposes a bunch of policy solutions. And in the energy chapter, it talks about how there needs to be like ways to like increase the price of natural gas. And in the transport chapter, it talks about the need to increase gas taxes. And I thought it was a really notable absence in this chapter that they did not talk about the need to like make the cost of meat higher relative to like plant-based alternatives. Because it should, like they should be luxury items. There's no reason that we need to be eating the amount of meat that we do as a society. And in fact, I don't think it's possible for us to decarbonize if we don't decrease meat consumption. There should be a meat budget. Everyone should get a meat budget and a tax credit when you opt out. <laughs> I would love to check that off. Yes, CRA, I am a vegan. I have eaten zero meat this year. Give me a thousand dollars. Thank you. <laughs> I, I I should credit I should credit Joe my I should I should credit my partner for that. <laughs> that was his suggestion. It's the first thing he said when I was like, "How can we fix the agriculture section?" And like, obviously, both of us were like, "Well, meat is the main problem." And then he's like, "We'll set a meat budget." And I was like, "Perfect." <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there are other things that can be done. I mean, I do think with this one, there's just like the looming thing with animal agriculture. We need to reduce our meat consumption but there's also like like you could use certain things for carbon sinks so planting trees just around farms can be helpful some people are super excited about the idea of hemp crops to sequester carbon <laughs> i just like i i like hemp as much as the next person but like it really feels like cannabis is being promoted as a solution to everything <laughs> i'm not necessarily <laughs> sure that it is <laughs> Including COVID. Like, y'all, it can't possibly solve climate change and cure COVID. That's too much. <laughs> <laughs> I took a COVID test earlier today. As you guys know, I was like, we need to delay for five minutes while I wait for my result. And it was like, I shouldn't even have to take this. I smoke so much weed that I should be immune to COVID. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tree thing is also really interesting. This is something that comes up on Rural Roots. Um, and also, while I was working on a farm, was a source of significant drama in the northern Alberta farming community is that especially the big agricultural farms have a real like hatred for trees because every like square meter of land that is dedicated to trees is not dedicated to crops that are being sold for profit. And so they have been chopping down trees at alarming rates in northern Alberta because there is the largest land transfer basically since treaties were signed is currently going on in Alberta with just small farmers selling land to gigantic agricultural corporations. And so they have chopped down so many trees in northern Alberta that they are starting to change the water table. No. And so it's just like in addition to ways that like agriculture needs to be adjusted around like carbon uh, emissions, that also starts to look at other ways that we are sort of like changing the hydrogeology of the planet because of profit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing that's been looming throughout this whole episode is like we're talking about climate change is like it's a huge topic, but also like it's just one element of how we need to be in balance with our planetary boundaries. And like water is one, but also we just passed like the planetary boundary for chemical pollution. Like the scientists just found that this week. So fuck. 
Yeah, it's more accurate to say we realized that we had long since passed. It's true, <laughs> true. It's <laughs> true. Um, but yeah, we're so screwed in so many ways. Yeah, and I think a really, a really powerful thing that people can do in their own lives is to support the the farmers who are working close to you a little bit more. Because in our Monopolies episode, that was something I really took away was that Kristen was saying, well, the farmers are miserable too because they're being forced to meet the demands of these monopolistic agriculture companies that are telling them exactly what seeds they can buy and what they can grow and how much they need to make. And if more farmers could be supported by people buying from them locally with the CSAs or going to farmers markets, like I feel like would that not help? Also fuck those people. <laughs> I'm owed a lot of money by a local CSA farmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, maybe not then. <laughs> <laughs> this is a person, a perfectly personal grievance. Uh, you are correct. Like that is a good, a good anti-capitalist thing to do. Uh, just also know that they are not perfect. Support local farmers, except the one that did a wage theft on Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in order to keep us from ending this episode on a total bummer, let's quickly recap all of the things that an individual can do, which is to engage more with their community, engage more with their politicians, and to support smaller initiatives, like to basically disengage from capitalism as much as you can, <laughs> and to slow down your life, and to basically improve every aspect of it by decarbonizing. Yeah, like, it, it sounds always like so much. And in a lot of ways it is, but I think it's also really important that we do capture that sort of like joy and possibility out of decarbonization. Because like, clearly we have to be realistic with the fact that it's going to be really bad. Like the ways that the climate crisis are going to unfold in the next 40 years are not something we need, we can take lightly. But at the same time that it's like, there is still going to be joy in that work that one of the great benefits of decarbonization has to be living better lives and focusing on that and focusing on the ways that it's like, yeah, oil and gas are such a, like a big part of how we live right now, but also recognizing that how we live right now sucks. <laughs> it sucks in so many ways. Um, and so it's a great opportunity for us to just be like, we are not just talking about technological solutions I don't believe that Elon Musk is going to save us or any of these other douchebag rich assholes. Like we are going to save us. And the way that we are going to do it is by building better, healthier, safer communities. And I think that that's actually really cool. Yeah. And I was reading an article the other day about how they've just done more studies on how loneliness affects health. And they're like, oh, it's actually like one of the most unhealthy things you can do for yourself is to be lonely. And like, what is everyone in our world doing right now, but living in isolation from each other, not just because of COVID, but because of like, I don't talk to people in my building when I share an elevator with them. And I didn't do it before COVID either. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're so disconnected. And and a really important way to to decarbonize is to become more involved in our communities, like start a community garden, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. What I've taken away from this episode is like, yeah, there's so many things that need to change. But what's really exciting about it is it's all possible and it's all within reach. And like, it's so easy to get down when you're talking about climate change, especially 
nowadays and especially in the way that it's just it permeates everything maybe it's just me because it's like all the podcasts I listen to but I feel like it's everywhere and I feel like it's constantly weighing me down but what I'm taking away from this is that there's so many solutions and a lot of them are like not that hard for a normal person it's just reframing how you think about your life like do you need uh, a card that seats like eight people if everywhere you go is within walking distance you know what I mean yeah but it's also like um like there are things that we can do individually as consumers. There are things we can do individually as citizens, but also like we work places and we're part of organizations and those organizations have buildings. So like, even if some of the stuff from this episode has seemed a little bit far away, like, I don't know, maybe if you're involved at a university, you can try to get solar panels put up there, or you can try to get it to divest from fossil fuels, or in your workplace, maybe you can join a sustainability committee or something like that. There are like a bunch of different ways that we can contribute to those five big sectors, even though they feel diffuse, um, just by like thinking about how we connect to them in our lives. And it's important to remember that everything helps. This isn't the meteor coming at us from Don't Look Up where nothing that an individual did would make a difference about whether the meteor hit us or not. Everything you do matters. And it's just important to remember that, you know, like sometimes it doesn't feel like it does. So it's like, oh, I might as well buy this thing that's wrapped in plastic, even though I don't really need it because everyone else is doing it and nothing I do matters. And it's like, no, that that thing now won't be replaced for something that you've bought and now that's like one small like less plastic thing and it's going to go to the dump and or the ocean and rot for 600 years and 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 create organisms that are like evolving to consume plastic horrifyingly <laughs> started optimistic ended not so much kyla <laughs> <laughs> i don't know I, evolution's kind of optimistic it means that life will go on without us <laughs> One of the things uh, that jumped out when Kristen was talking about, like, we're part of organizations and stuff is that, like, there are also guerrilla things that you can do. And I don't mean blowing up pipelines. I mean, like, at the office, turning down the thermostat. Um, you don't have to ask for permission to do that. You can just do that. Like, if you live in a building that plants, like, a bunch of useless flowers out front, get the jump on them. And in the spring, plant garden vegetables there instead. Like there are little things that you can do to just sort of be like, we have a, we live in a society that tells us we can't do things like turn down the thermostat at work, but you can, <laughs> no one's watching. Yeah. Like the older I get, the more I realize that rules are arbitrary and nobody's watching and nobody's thinking about me. So it's like, I might as well do the good thing, even if I'm like, oh, but what if somebody notices and says something to me? They won't. And even if they do, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> We'll deal with that when it happens. <laughs> and you can carry that mindset along too, that it's like a lot of the ways that we're going to be dealing with the climate crisis are going to be just like little ways that we support our neighbors in ways that aren't normal. Um, and so it's going to be things like, you know, talking to people in the elevator or talking to people in your building or in your neighborhood and just like building up social connections. And it's kind of awkward and a little weird and no one does it, but you can, you can just do those things. <laughs> Great. Well, I I feel pretty good about this episode. <laughs> I I I'm trying to think of ways to feel less helpless because certainly for the, our fishing episode and our fashion episodes, I just left feeling like what are we going to do? But the more I think about it and the more I follow podcasts that are talking about solutions, the more I realize that like 
it's not impossible. It's just going to be a little hard. And it's not even that hard, really. So let's do it, you guys. If you liked today's episode, you should check out the Harbinger Media Network featuring shows like The Alberta Advantage, which Robbie so kindly shouted out earlier. And uh, I recommend checking them out as well. Even if you're not from Alberta, they're a very, very knowledgeable bunch. You can find out more about the Harbinger Media Network and the entire cross-country lineup of shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. You can catch us on our next episode.